process you're kind of designing against a known situation, whereas project you're kind of tackling a little bit of the unknown. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. All right, Vinay, thank you for coming on the show. Super excited to have you here as, again, I am a a fan of your guys' software, what you've built here with Process Street. So uh, really looking forward to this interview, diving in here and a bit more of your backstory here. But um, for anyone in the audience who doesn't know um, who you are or what Process Street is, can you kind of give us the quick 60 to 90 second high level overview? Sure. Yeah. Firstly, I just want to say really excited to be here. And um, thanks for reaching out and sharing your story on Twitter. That was uh, really exciting. And I want to jump into that a little bit later, but sounds like you uh, did some really good work systemizing your business over the, the holiday break. So exciting story. A uh, bit of background on myself. I can kind of tell you a bit about my, my, my background and we can jump into the product in a second, but I'm originally from Australia. Uh, I've been running remote companies now for more than 10 years. And Process Street was really a product that I just wanted in one of my last companies. We were running a marketing agency. We were doing lead generation for consumer finance. And we were running a remote team uh, of 20 people. And I was basically looking for a, a consumerized VPN product. So I knew that there was like these bit heavyweight business process management products in the enterprise that all the banks use for processing your credit card transactions and stuff. And I was like, why isn't there something like this that I can use for my 20 person company that's as easy to use as Gmail? And that was the original kind of like idea for Process Street. And so we built it as, as an internal tool for that company actually. Uh, and then we, we spun it out. A bit more of the story was I was actually in, in San Francisco working on another startup called Vitoto that was a video sharing app back in 2012. And that kind of quickly shut down and didn't gain much traction. We weren't able to raise money for it. And, and after I'd kind of done that and I went through an accelerator in Silicon Valley, I basically packed up and, and moved to Argentina. I was still running my marketing agency as a remote business. And so I was, I was able to kind of, once we shut down the startup and I had no reason to be in San Francisco anymore, I was able to move down to Argentina. And I'd been kind of working on the idea for Prostitute. I knew it was a product that I wanted for my business internally as the first customer. And, you know, there was a longer term potential plan of maybe if it's useful for us, maybe we could spin it out as like its own product. But I didn't have a co-founder and I just shut down this last company. So I wasn't really taking much action on it. And then I landed in Argentina and I was planning on staying there for six months to kind of just, you know, enjoy, enjoy South American life a little bit. And in my first week while I was, I basically booked a hostel for a week to search for an apartment. And in my first week while I was in that hostel, I met Cameron, who's now my co-founder at Process Street. And we met like on the balcony of this hostel, drinking some beers and we got chatting and I learned that he was like, an engineer and that kind of started a conversation that basically ended up with Cameron moving down to Argentina three months later and us building out the prototype of Process Street down in Buenos Aires, um, 
which was the kind of start of everything until eventually we took it back to the to the states and kind of like rolled it out and, and raised money so there yeah, that's kind of like the story it's quite a remote nomad kind of like story of how we got started with process street that's amazing uh, i love that just the the serendipity of uh, meeting your your founder in a hostel and uh in argentina that's pretty pretty incredible um pretty incredible story there and you guys have um had quite a journey since then and, and it's interesting i guess to see because it guys i'm correct you guys are vc backed now but this literally started as like a nomadic kind of journey and now you guys have gone through kind of the the tech and vc funding and was there any um, collision with those worlds, I guess, as you were uh, doing that? There was a lot. So yeah, so now we've raised more than 15 million from some of the top investors in the world, like Excel, Salesforce Ventures, and Atlassian Ventures. Um, but at the beginning, when we first started, remote wasn't cool. Actually, remote wasn't even cool, honestly, like January last year. Um, <laughs> but but uh, when we started, it really wasn't cool. And you couldn't really point to any very large scaled, fully remote businesses kind of five, six years ago. There were some that were just starting to break out like GitLab and Automatic, um, but it was quite difficult. So so when you tried to raise money and you're like, oh yeah, we're gonna build a billion dollar company uh, fully remote, the VC is like, well, no one's ever done that before. So that seems very risky, right? But now there's lots of fully remote, you know, billion dollar plus companies. And so that, so there's a lot more evidence that model works. And so the VCs are a lot more uh, inclined to, to, to invest there. And then obviously now with Corona, they have no choice. So um, yeah, it was definitely hard. It was definitely hard to do the first the first seed round. And actually we, we kind of went back and forth at the beginning deciding, are we gonna actually just stop being remote? And are we gonna actually just start in San Francisco? And that was a decision we went back and forth on and ultimately we couldn't hire our chief architect in San Francisco and they ended up coming, uh, being based in Vancouver. And that just kind of like made the decision for us, right? We're like, we have no good candidates in San Francisco. We have this amazing person we really, really want in Vancouver. We're already used to like what running remote. Let's just like keep doing that. And then that kind of made the decision and we kept on from there. Nice. I love that. Um, so I want to take a moment here and I want to share just kind of, I guess, my story with Process Street a bit here as well. And then I want to dive almost to get us a bit into also kind of like almost like the philosophy of how you guys have built this. Cause I think it's, um, it's really interesting, but I've been aware of you guys for probably three or four years. I think since I first came across it and I kind of dabbled with it at first, but I didn't, um, I didn't think I quite fully got it at the time or, uh, I don't know what, but I, I never fully implemented it. And, um, recently I talked to a friend, um, actually a guy who's on the podcast, uh, recently Corey Northcutt. Um, who runs a marketing agency. And he's like this, I just built everything in my business on this. And he's like, I just run it all like through process street. And it's just amazing. And it's just like, it's so easy to manage the processes. And he just kind of like raved on this. And he's like, now I'm just like a systems designer. That's like all I do. I just design the systems. And that's what so you I, should be as a CEO, basically. Like you're either a product visionary or you're a systems builder, right? It's like a CEO or a COO role. Yeah. And so that's, a, that's, and that was like really appealing to me because I felt like I was always just like, I don't know, it just wasn't quite there. Like the systems like were not easy to change and stuff. And so um, I basically let go of my head of ops in December and I literally just spent my holiday break. I was just like, all right, I letting go of my head of ops. She was kind of like project managing everything and wasn't really doing a great job at like operations. And it was just kind of like, she was running, just trying to like kind of juggle all the balls and like keep mm. that 
in the air. And I was just like, no, 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 we need systems. And like, I knew this, but like, it just wasn't happening. So I let her go. And I just spent my break. Just like, I just went all in on process street. And I just like spent like two weeks over the holidays, just building out all of our flows. And what then are some flows you built? So uh, we're a content agency. So like one of the, the biggest ones was like simple thing from like a podcast episode from, all right, we have the recording all the way through like publishing, which means it's going to go through a VA. It's going to go through an audio editor. It's going to go through a writer. It's going to go through a video editor to turn those into videos. It's going to turn that. Um, and then we need someone to like copy edit all of that and then someone to publish it. So it's like, it's like this 30 step process that touches six mm-hmm. people. And it was absolutely a nightmare to project manage that. And then like we put this in place and it's just like, this is awesome. It like just hands it from one person to the next. And uh, the flow is just kind of going and everything there. And um, we did that for basically kind of like all of our core deliverables where we just like built the flow of like strategist inputs, all the operations, all the project management people touch it. And then like just comes out as an output on the other side. Um, And so that was kind of like a lot of the stuff Mm -hmm. that I initially built. And then we've been you know, building other small things, kind of doing payroll invoicing and stuff like that as well. But those were the big ones that just like literally replaced a 5,000 a month ops person. So that's an awesome quote there. And how much are you paying for process street? Uh, I think I'm at like 210 a month right now uh, for our users. Uh, I think, I think somewhere around so there. Basically yeah. for like $3,000 a year replaced someone that was 60,000 a year. Yeah, pretty much. So, so you basically <laughs> just made like $57,000. Yeah, it's insane. Like it's, it's, and then like, what's cool is like as a business owner, like that's immediately just like in my pocket, which is cool. Like that, like the difference right there of just like the savings, like, wow, that was costs. And now that's profit. Like it's absolutely, it's yeah, really you absurd. In your pocket, or you probably hire another content writer with that. You can do a lot, right? Uh, that's, that's an awesome story. Are you setting the? Are you setting up your processes with um, any integrations, or are you using any of the kind of like conditional logic or approvals features? Uh, yeah, we used a lot of the conditional logic, so it was very simple. Like not every client that pays, for example. Um, so whenever we do a podcast episode, um, sometimes we're doing videos. Sometimes clients are on the basic package and they don't get videos. So it's like, does this include videos? If yes, then like add all the video tasks. If not, then mm-hmm. like we don't have them in there and stuff like that. So um, yeah, definitely doing a lot of conditional logic around that. Um, and then we're doing a lot of Zapier integrations as well. That was the other thing. Mm-hmm. We moved from Asana, so I don't want to like uh, match, but like their, their Zapier integration was one of the reasons why I wanted to leave it because um, it was so limiting. And like the coolest thing with Process Street was like every single field that you like put into a process becomes something that you can zap. So literally one of the things mm-hmm. we did was like, it was like a simple request, but like our sales guy was like, can we please just have a database of like all the content we've ever created? And like, that was like a painful thing for us to put together before. And now it's just like in every process, there's a point where it just zaps all of that information to a giant table. And we have our database of every single piece of content we've ever created for a client. And that's just consistently mm-hmm. being updated automatically. So um, that, and then like payrolls apps. So whenever like a contractor submits, uh, it zaps over to an Airtable where we kind of like source all of our stuff for like our payroll and how we determine how much to pay each contractor and stuff. So that's awesome. Are you using Airtable? This I'm going to go off topic here because that's all good, man. About systems, but uh, are you using Airtable for for that database for your content tracking? 
Yeah, I'm a huge Airtable guy. I've been using it for a long time. So yeah, using it a lot for like nice. the databases. Um, so we use it to, like I said, like a database for every piece of content we've created. And then we've got a database for um, every contract or payment that goes out and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, as well as like, there's probably two of the bigger ones. So yeah, maybe maybe you're already on top of it, but we've written some really cool posts on our blog about how we use Airtable and Process Street mm-hmm. together for like content uh for our content database, we call it like the cat table, content asset tracking, kind of in the same way, you know, you've got like a blog post publishing process or a podcasting publishing process that kind of kicks off off Airtable as the thing's being done and pushes back into Airtable at the end. Mm-hmm. But we basically have like one table that tracks all content relative to process read. So not just things that we've created, but if somebody mentions us in a blog post or if somebody makes a YouTube video that talks about us, or if I'm on this podcast episode, this is going to end up in our database. Um, so we can kind of not only tracking like content we've created, but content that references our product or business in some way. Um, and then we have like another tab that's the company that talked about that. So, you know, that was a, it was a HubSpot blog post that talked about us. So that would kind of get tagged as HubSpot. And then we have another table that will be the, the contacts of the writer, right? So who is mm-hmm. the particular writer or tweeter or influencer? Um, and they all kind of get joined together. We can see, oh, this writer has like mentioned us in these three different, like on this YouTube video and on this blog post. Uh, and then we also have like a, a thing that sucks in tweets. So using Zapier, we're, we're, we're listening for tweets for our uh, product URL and our product name. And then those are getting dumped into a table and then those get joined against the contacts. So I can kind of like see, oh, here's like a person that's made a YouTube video about us, made a blog post about us and tweeted about us four times. And I have all those links and all that information like inside Airtable. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, it's pretty amazing. I love that. Love that use case. Yeah. So maybe just, just, I want to just stop for a second and just to kind of give people maybe an overview of what Process Street is. Um, Cause we didn't kind of cover that, but, but simply, you know, Process Street is a way to manage your playbooks and processes for your business, but it's not just a way to kind of document your processes. We actually let you take processes that you would normally document and turn them into actionable checklists and integrated workflows. So before kind of you take your example, we have this process of how we make a, a podcast. We've got these kind of 10 things that need to get done each time. And you could keep that in a document. Whereas in Process Street, like you kind of talked about, you can actually break up those tasks, build out logic and rules and form fields, and then that kind of builds out a big checklist. These are the, the list of things that need to get done. And then the tasks kind of get auto-assigned off to the different people that are responsible for those tasks when they need to be done. So first the, the copywriter has to write something and then the designer can design something. And we manage kind of that whole flow and all the work. Um, and then you can kind of, so you have this actionable checklist that you can track, oh, what's the stage of this podcast episode? Oh, we're in like review stage or we're in you know edit stage two or, or whatever. So you can kind of see exactly where it is. And then you can kind of turn those into integrated workflows. So like you said, you can then kind of wrap up all that data. You could dump it into your Airtable or send it off in an email or generate a contract with it and kind of do things so that you can take those checklists and turn them into integrated workflows that push and pull data from your other system. So it's really kind of like turning your your company knowledge into uh, living actionable workflows instead of it being either stored in someone's head or in like a static decaying document somewhere. Yeah. And I think that was the the solution really solved for us is we had Google doc processes um, all the time. But the, I think the the big breakdown with like having just like, you know, like you said, documented processes is um, 
one, as soon as they change, then you got to like notify everyone, Hey, something's changed here. We got to do this differently. And then there's also just the complexity of how do you actually project manage that at the same time, or like hand off mm -hmm. things from one person to the next. And what was so cool about it is it was like, you're as like basically like SOPs with project combined with project management all in mm -hmm. one place, which just, um, just absolute game changer. And I'm curious, like, um, from your guys' perspective, like, how have you, like, is this something that, you know, like, because there's like an, it's, it's an approach that I haven't seen too many other softwares really tackle or take this other way. Like there's other, like, and that's the interesting thing about this kind of whole like project management world is it's like, it's almost like philosophies on like how to do work. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm curious, I guess, how you guys kind of came around to that or how you even think about that from like a UX side of like how you're building your product, how to make this like work well and how you guys kind of, I guess, came to where it is. Yeah, well, I guess the, the, the first big one was we saw that the kind of process and workflow market, and, you know, this was the problem that I encountered at the beginning was like I couldn't find a solution that was in the workflow or the process market that did what I wanted. Um, there's lots of project solutions, but that those the, the kind of workflow process so, uh, like market was underserved. So you can kind of actually even take a step back and think like, what's the difference between process and project, right? Like, how do you even like different differentiate those two? Um, and and what you kind of you'll find, and I'll tell you what the explanation in a second, but you'll find that like certain businesses and certain teams within certain businesses are generally more process focused or they're more project focused. So there is kind of delineations of, of work and types of companies that tend to be more process or more project focused. Um, so easy way to kind of think about the differences between the two is that project you're kind of going at a kind of, you're, you're trying to solve an unknown problem. Like you don't know exactly how you're going to to build this project. You don't know every task that's going to be involved. You're expecting there's going to be new things that come up that you haven't done before. And a lot of the time, you're not doing many of these same projects over and over again. They tend to be like, you're doing this project once and the project gets done and you move on to another project. There may be some similarities depending on your business, but a lot of the time, they're different. And there is a path to turning a project into a process too that we can talk about. But a process is where you're basically building against the known. So you already know how something is going to work or should work. Uh, and you're trying to build a system to make that as efficient and high quality and as few mistakes and have as much visibility and automation as possible, right? So you're not trying to tackle something that you're not really sure exactly how, how, how it needs to be done or has a lot of figuring out to do. You're trying to really streamline and optimize something that you know how to do well. Um, you could know how to do it well because you, you, your business has already done it thousands of times before and has made many mistakes in the past and has figured out what mistakes not to make and you want to distill those learnings down into the rest of the organization. So other people that are trying to do that process are not just remaking the same mistakes that you've made over and over again in the past, those thousand times you've done it before. Um, it could be because uh, 
there's regulatory or health and safety issues around how to do that process. If you don't pay your taxes this way, if you don't pay your employees this way, you can get fined, you can be out of compliance, you can get sued. So there's there's ways that something should be done. This isn't like a place to experiment and like have fun with like a health and safety policy. You know, it's like, let's, let's just try a new knot in how we knot this like safety harness, right? That's not like a thing that's open for experimentation. So there's, there's, there's guidelines in, in how to do it. Or maybe you're trying to like adopt a best practice from someone else. So that could be you've hired a new person in the company and they have a lot of experience in this particular thing and you want them to encode in like knowledge that they've learned from somewhere somewhere else. Or maybe you're taking a process from our process library or just a book or something that you've learned somewhere else and you want to like encode learnings that other people have made outside the business and you want to try to kind of bring in those, those encoded learnings into your own business so you don't, again, avoid making those same mistakes yourself. So process, you're kind of designing against a known situation, whereas project, you're kind of tackling a little bit of the unknown. So when you think of all the different the different platforms like a Trello or an Asana, you kind of you're starting with a blank screen and you're throwing in tasks, and anybody can throw in tasks, and things are getting reorganized and reordered and renamed and reshuffled as like you're learning as the project is going on and you're gaining new data and new insights, um, whereas um, process, which is going to be like a process street or a Nintex or an SAP workflow. Um, you, someone's, there's a builder who's like deciding how the process needs to get run. And then the, the people who are running the process don't really have much flexibility after that to decide how to kind of tackle things in different ways. It's like, we know we want this done this way. Maybe there's a few paths or a few decisions that need to get made, but largely we want it executed in this way because of whatever reasons that I kind of talked about before, we know this is the way that we want it done. And so there are different types of businesses and different types of teams that tend to align with that. So from a business perspective, you know, insurance companies or healthcare companies or um, accountants that are kind of like have these maybe regulatory or very repetitive. I mean, you're a good example of creating content. Um, where you've got like this kind of similar type of work that you're doing over and over again, you've figured out a good way to do it that that is profitable or you know compliant, and you just want people to kind of continue to to to, to build that process uh, or to to execute on that process. Project-based teams might be like a startup that's inventing a new product that's never been invented before and no one's ever used before, right? So it's like you don't have like a, a, a playbook that you can follow because you're doing something that's never been done before. Um, you know, maybe making a movie or doing like kind of crazy creative projects where you've got all this design that's happening that, that's never been done before. Um, Actually, just engineering teams in general tend to work much more, software engineering teams tend to work much more on a project basis because they're working on one feature. That feature has a bunch of unknown problems. That kind of gets done. And then they move on to another feature that has a whole new set of unknown problems that they're working against. Um, you know, building a building or a house or something like that's going to have a whole set of unique problems based on the plot of land and the exact kind of place that that building is being built that are not going to follow over to the next building that's being built because that's going to have a whole new set of unique problems that need to get solved. So, and then like within a business, uh, marketing, for example, tends to be more, more project-based um, and like sales and support and HR tend to be more um, process-based as teams. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it, I love that kind of way you break that down and everything, because it makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I don't think 
um, as a buyer of these tools, you don't always even like realize the kind of like differences in these approaches, but it, ultimately it's like, okay, Asana served us well when we were at the beginning figuring stuff out and we were just getting mm-hmm. going, but as you mature in a business, you're like, okay, this is not what we need anymore. I was like, this is really inefficient, like the way that we're doing things. And that's where, as you start to kind of scale and build process there, with where it makes a lot of sense. And you start to gain leverage from like having these tools that are, I guess, kind of managing the process instead of trying to take something repetitive and just project manage it each time. Yeah. That's actually a good little like a tangent into something that I mentioned before, which was around how you can actually flip a project into a process. Um, so we've got a good blog post about this. I think it's called something like Uber's expansion playbook or something like that. And um, this is like an example I used to, for this, where at the beginning, Uber started in San Francisco and they just had one city. And then they started, you know, they raised some of their first money and they started to expand and maybe they expanded to New York and Chicago and a few other cities that were their, you know, kind of early adopter cities. And in those first few expansions, it was it was a project for Uber because they had never launched in another city. So they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't know the challenges and opportunities and the marketing playbooks and how where they were going to acquire their drivers from and blah, blah, blah. So for their first few cities, it was a project where they were still figuring out how to actually expand in an efficient, cost-effective, fast way. But after they'd kind of done that five or six times, they turned that into a playbook. They turned that into a process. And they, they then encoded, they're like, okay, now we know what works and what doesn't work. We've figured out a bunch of mistakes. We've seen the things that have slowed us down and the things that sped us up. And they encoded all that into a playbook and they started hiring expansion managers or you know um, GMs in, all, in hundreds of cities around the world. And they gave all of them this playbook to basically go and copy. So. At the beginning, it was a project, but at some point, it flipped from being a project into a process, and that can definitely happen, right? As you as you scale it, and your your example is a perfect example as well. Yeah, I love that. I think for our side, it was like our onboarding process, which is much more complicated. There's a lot more consultative stuff. There's unknowns with like launching a client's new podcast or something like that. A lot of unknowns there, but. What I found is you can still build it into a process and like have almost even checkpoints that you're hitting along the way where it's like, okay, like, yeah, deciding on the show name or the show artwork is kind of a wavy process of creativeness. But like at some point you align and you hit this and then boom, the next part of it kicks off. And so I think there's like, um, even within project management, uh, there, there is some level that you can kind of incorporate with it. Yeah. Another, another good example is like Pixar where, when Pixar was designing their first or creating their first few movies, it was a project for them. They hadn't done this before. They were figuring it out, but now they have this crazy playbook. And actually a lot of, you know, creative products have this. South Park is another good example where there's like some really good kind of documentaries on like their episode generation process, right? Where there's like a playbook where they're able like in one week, they like absorb the news out there and they rapidly prototype and storyboard. And like in one week they can have an episode produced, right? Mm-hmm. And Pixar kind of has the same thing where they have this entire like storyboarding process now that they have, which they kind of developed over multiple movies. But um, Pixar now doesn't need those original kind of creative geniuses anymore because they've encoded that culture of creativity into processes that enables them to scale and produce more movies without these unicorn, you know, designer, engineer people that cost millions of dollars, right? Yeah. 
I love that. And, and so I'm curious um, from your side, you know, what has been the hard part of building this company out? What has been the hard part of, I guess, um, growing Process Street or just this whole entire journey from, you know, Argentina to where you guys are now? Because it seems like you've come a long way. Yeah, uh, all of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all of it. A great question. <laughs> startup, startups are hard. Uh, if you do, if you want to do something easy, don't start a startup. Um, let's see. So there's different challenges along the way as we as we scale. I think that getting the first round of funding was probably the big initial challenge. Um, that took us a long time. Took us hundreds of meetings and many months of grueling fundraising. Um, you know, this was back then when remote wasn't a thing, et cetera. So that was definitely a big, a big challenge. Um, building and managing a team is always, is always a challenge. Finding talent, competing against Google and Facebook and all these other crazy companies that are all trying to hire the, the same people as you is, is an ongoing challenge. Um, and then I think that like, uh, you know, now we're, we're at this kind of phase of scaling, right? We're kind of scaling is a challenge for us and being able to kind of continue to, to maintain compounding growth um, at, a, at a larger scale just becomes a much bigger problem. You know, big marketing teams hitting lots of channels and big sales teams you know, inbound and outbound and all this stuff going on. And so kind of just, just maintaining growth is uh, basically yeah. the main startup challenge. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I'm curious then maybe how has your role evolved over um, the past few years, I guess, from those early days to maybe what your, what does your role look like now? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things for me, you know, when I say don't start a startup, if you want to do something hard, uh, if you don't want to do something hard, I think one of the things for me is like, I've never done anything for this long before. And I think one of the reasons is because I get, I get bored as soon as I don't see any more growth, right? Like as soon as I stop learning in something, I kind of get bored. So I'll go in, and this is this is also an issue with like being a systems builder. And I've been a systems builder since I was young. It's like, I'd get a job, I'd go in, I'd learn it all, I'd build systems. And then like, I would have nothing to do and I have nothing to learn. And then I just, and I just leave because I get bored. But one of the great things about running a startup is that every six months or so, my job changes. So I'm never getting bored and I'm constantly learning. Um, so yeah, I can kind of run through the timeline a little bit. At the beginning, it was just Cameron and I. And so there, the responsibilities were split. Cameron build the app, I do everything else. So I was building the front-end website. I was doing all the marketing and content, email marketing, all that kind of stuff. I was doing community. I was doing sales. I was doing support. I was doing recruitment. I was doing fundraising. I was doing every, every function, right? Um, and Cam and I was basically trying to just carve out as much and it, like time and focus as possible for Cameron, so that he could build a product. Because to build a process product like Process Street at scale will require hundreds of engineers over a long period of time. So it's not something possible for one person to even make a real dent into. Um, so as much time and focus as your engineering team can get, if it's just a few people, you you know you don't want them doing anything besides building product. Don't want them fixing the website. Don't want them answering tickets. Don't want them doing anything because anything that they're doing is taking away from product time that like you're going to need many years of. Um, so that 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 was kind of like the first phase. Um, 
then we went into we went into angel pads so we did the accelerator that was a lot of um working on like the positioning of the company and the deck and how we're going to position it to the market and the enterprise uh the enterprise and then the vcs right so it's kind of like we've got this tool it's solving some problems for some people but like model that out to how it becomes a massive business right and it's kind of like building out that model and assessing the markets and the customers um so that was kind of the next phase then it moved into actual fundraising so now i'm like full-time fundraising basically well fundraising you know eight to seven and then answering support tickets and, and selling till midnight you know um and and so that's like your fundraising period depending on how lucky you are that could take you know two months to a year um us it was on the longer side so it was a lot of like five meetings a day for many many months um and just just pitching and refining that pitch then you close the seed round then i shift into full-time recruiter so now i'm recruiting and i'm just hiring uh onboarding and training the team building out different functions um, and then that kind of like goes on for a little bit with different functions, right? So start with start hiring product, then start hiring customer success and marketing and sales, and then building the systems for those different teams and optimizing the playbooks for those different teams. So that's kind of like, you know, three months each team that goes on for a year. Now you've got like multiple small teams built across the company, raise again, start bringing in directors now to manage those teams start building out the sales team. So now it's kind of like hiring directors and then building out playbooks for both the directors and the team underneath them because I'm the VP. Um, and then it's, and then it's fundraising again, and then it's now it's hiring VPs. Um, so now it's like putting VPs on top of directors and then building out systems for that. And then kind of enabling them to be able to hire and recruit on their own. So now I just manage so it was weird. Like at some point I was managing 20 people directly. Right. But now I only manage five people, six people directly because I have VPs underneath me and then they manage everybody else directly. Right. Um, so it kind of went from managing a lot of people. So lots of one-on-ones, you know, when you've got 20 people underneath you, you're kind of half your week is just doing one-on-ones um, and kind of managing those people. Then that shifts now that I have the VP team. And then, and then now it's a lot of more around like, OKR planning and strategy and product strategy and vision and um, like defining kind of growth targets, working on like big partnerships, like I'm managing, you know, um, partnerships with like our integrations into Slack and Salesforce and stuff like that um, and dealing and dealing with, uh, with, with investors for the next round. So yeah, it's just a constant thing that's constantly changing. Um, it's it's stressful when you go through those changes because you've got to kind of like rebuild your calendar, rebuild how everything's working, you've got to throw out a bunch of systems and and deploy a bunch of new systems. Um, so those times are stressful because the, the the changeover of your systems creates additional workload on top of all the normal work that you have to do. But at the same time, being just like an A-type hyper bored person, it's it's really good for me because maybe the issue is like, I have some trauma that I need to deal with. Right. But without having dealt with that, uh, it's, it's uh, really good for me because it keeps me occupied and constantly learning, which, um, is one of my favorite things to do. Yes, I love that. It's, um, and just for that, I, I appreciate that, like walk through of the evolution of that. And it's just, 
um, amazing to hear from the level of just like you and one person to like the having this like tier of VPs underneath you. And it's just uh, quite a journey and incredible. And congrats on all the success with what you've built here and everything. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, as we're kind of um, closer to time here, I always, one of the questions I always like to ask is, you know, if you were to go back to yourself, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, um, to your, you know, your previous self trying to found companies, you know, what advice, um, would you give yourself there? Yeah, I, I'll go further back. Cause I was still working on process street, uh, five years ago. That was about when we started it. And I've been running companies for 10 years. The, the big thing though, the, if I can go all the way back, I would just say start earlier, right. In that the, the big, the big trap, I think for me, at least was while I had a job, while I was locked into some other type of like distraction, um, just the, the idea and, and all the experience and learnings of building a business weren't coming at me, right? But as soon as I flipped into full-time running a business, even if you're not making any money, you're still, your learning trajectory changes significantly. And you start to have to think about what would I need to build to, to, to make more money or grow this business. And on top of that, you start building, you start, you start building systems and a framework or an infrastructure to actually be able to capture growth in the future, right? It's like, if you don't have a company set up yet, and you don't have a bank account set up yet, then if somebody comes and knocks on your door and says, oh, hey, I have this million dollar contract for you, like you, you can't process it properly, right? And so, it, it, and, and those are the most basic levels, but you know, banking, payroll, you know, a, a, a salesperson or an, an, a, a freelance designer that you know, or just like as you start to kind of collect these resources and infrastructure, you're able to execute on bigger and bigger uh, visions or, or ideas or opportunities. And starting the journey of building that infrastructure and getting that experience, you know, now I know heaps of lawyers and heaps of accountants in different countries, and I have designers and developers in my back pocket, and I know all of these freelance content writers. So if I wanted to start another business today, it'd be way easier because I already have like all this, and it, you know, a new opportunity came. Someone's like, oh, we want to partner with you, do something. I'd be able to execute that on that way better than if I was just like working in a job up until now. And then someone came to me with that opportunity. So I think that like the, the sooner that you can flip over and start getting experience and learning and, and building a network and building out the infrastructure of a business, the sooner you're going to be ready to capitalize on a bigger opportunity that shows itself. Um, but if you don't have that set up, then you're not going to be ready for it. Also, you might not even be looking for it. You might even be, be you might not even know where to look if you haven't first, you know, worked with ten small clients. You might not even know how to identify and close that bigger client that comes across without the experience and infrastructure and case reference customers and everything that you've kind of built along the way to get those first ton, uh, ten done. So, I would be like, just start early. Like I feel like if I started building websites and 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 uh, selling stuff on the internet when I was 16, I would have been super rich by the time I was like 20, right? Um, and just just getting going early and just taking the jump, even if that's with a side hustle, right? Just taking action, I think was the big one. Um, when, I was, when I was growing up in Australia, starting a business seemed almost impossible. Like it seemed like you had to have a big loan and have a big office and you had to have worked in a big company for many years to know how it worked. 
Um, you know, I think the culture has changed a lot with Y Combinator and Silicon Valley and drop shipping and, uh, you know, all, all the kind of internet companies that have, that have spun up. But um, that leap between thinking you can't start a business to just getting the very first, like, Lego pieces, like, laid down, right? The very first bricks laid down. That, I think, is the biggest jump, right? Once you've made that jump, then it just becomes an iterative process, not like this massive kind of, like, unknown risk jump that you've got to take, right? Yeah, I love that advice. And it's it's so true. Uh, the first business I made is um, still, um, still operating and everything. And it's um, it, it was cool. I learned a lot, but it was ultimately, I think the business model was a lead generation company, much harder to scale, much more difficult. But whenever I started the, the podcasting agency, which has proven to be much more scalable and just much better business overall, it was just like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, I've got designers already. I know, like I've got a payroll process. I know how to manage our customers. Like I, like you just have so many things that even if it's not the exact same business, you can just grab, you know, 30, 40, 50% of your, your processes or your flow and just drop them over here. And you've got the foundations for a business that you don't have to build again. And I think that that's, again, now I've got it in process street. It's even easier to duplicate it. Uh, but it's, you know, it's just like that, those kind of things where it's like, yeah, those, I love that where it's like the foundational stuff, whether it's the network or the systems or anything like that, it, it's, it really does compound over your career. Yeah, there's a reason that VCs significantly favor second-time founders over first-time founders. It's because your chances of success in your second business are dramatically higher than the chances of success in the first one. And this is one of the reasons, right? It's because you've kind of figured out a lot of these basic pieces that you don't have to spend the first two years figuring out again in the next business. Um, and that allows you to kind of move faster, be more efficient, scale faster, et cetera. Yeah. I love that. Um, awesome. Well, Vinay, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Absolutely amazing stuff here. And if anyone wants to go um, try out Process Street, see what you guys are doing online, which I highly recommend, um, or find out more about you, where's the best place to go online? Yeah, well, you can just check out uh, Process Street at process.st. It's here on the shirt. Um, or you can just Google Process Street uh, and we'll turn up everywhere. Uh, if you want to chat with me personally, you can hit me up on Twitter. My Twitter is vinayp10. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on here, Vinay. This was an awesome interview and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. This has been great. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.